Welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated to Elena Shmasuf Rabbi Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Maya, and Rina D. Rafua Shleim of Batila Batia, Bachaya Tova, Brachim Gaia, Rachel Gita, Yididi Chaim, and Avira Bachaya, Shalm Chaya Sarah, Shalm the Elka, and Shadokhim for all those in need. We move to the next show fate. We now find ourselves with Gidon, and, and Gidon is representing a new era in the show Atniel ben Knaz, Chazal tell us, was a tzaddik. Chazal tell us he was a Talmud Chacham. Chazal tell us that he reinstituted some of the forgotten Torah after Moshe Rabbeinu died. You would look at him as more of a Gadol Hador, a Rosh Hashiva, and he happened to be the leader of the Jewish people. Ehud ben Geira is a new character, but he, there's no indication of any character flaws in him. He's a lefty, but I don't think we'd hold that against him. That is. We don't know enough about, there's just so little. We have that one pasuk. And then, of course, Devora. she's the shofetet. She sits underneath the palm tree. She's teaching Torah. She's inspiring. There's no question that these are good, solid, strong people. And then we meet the next stage, Gedo, Avimelech, who's not really a shofet. He's the anti-shofet. Yivtach, the minor characters that we know nothing about which someone told me they can't wait to see how we learn that. And then Shimshon at the end. And, and so we can see that there is a marked difference between where we started and where we are now. And so let's pick up with the, the Pasagal. do evil in the eyes of God, and Hashem puts him in the hands of Midian for seven years. I think it's important to take a look at where Midian is, just that we have a better sense of what makes sense and how it actually does, in fact, play itself out. So if you look at the map on the left, it's not a great map. I had a very hard time finding a good picture online. But if you take a look at the map on the left, you see that Midian is to the south of Israel, it's directly across from the Egyptian, the, the Sinai Desert. In the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moshe Rabbeinu was in Egypt and he was fleeing to Midian, it totally makes sense. He's going across the desert and he ends up in Midian. But if you were Midian and you were to attack the Jewish people, the logical route would be to come in from southern Israel and work your way up. But in fact, Midian does not do that. We're going to see that the um, excitement, if you will, the drama, by a better word, of where Midian and its accompanying Hevra that's going to attack the Jewish people is in Amek Yisrael, that blue circle right there. Now, what's fascinating is that so much of Tanakh takes place in Amek Yisrael, not so much in other places in Eretz Yisrael. And the reason for that is, is it is the, the point where so many of the different Shvatim meet. And of course, it's the most fertile, most beautiful, most plentiful wealthiest area in all of Israel. So if you were coming and you want to start up with the Jewish people and you wanted to, uh, I don't know, see a marauding band of people, you would it would make sense to come in through Amek Yizah. But why is Midian coming all the way up from the north when they in fact live to the south of Eretz Yizah? This is a fascinating, fascinating idea that Rabbi Michael Hatton suggests, which totally makes sense. Midian is, we know Midian. Now, we know Midian because Yitro was Kohen Minyan, but Midian actually dates back further in Tanakh than that. When Yosef is sold, 
there is a orchat yishmaelim and orchot midinim. Right, the the uh, the merchants that come are either yishmaelim or or midyanim. Why is that? So they were tradesmen that followed the the uh, biblical trade route, the Via Maris, that would go along the coast of Israel, and so. They would come in from northern Israel with their trade, with their wares, and would come down through Amek Israel along the coast and would end up in Egypt. They bridged continents, and that is how they kept the economy going. And so it's not so crazy that Midian would use its trade routes in order to use it as another way to find a means of uh, economic um, viability and to take advantage of the surplus that existed. In fact, Rabbi Hatton points out that in times of plenty, Midianim were able to be traders. In times of not so much plenty, when there was not prosperity in the land, they went to be plunderers, but they were going around along the same route for either one of their activities. And so that is... That is where we find ourselves. Okay, let's take a look at Pasuk Bet. And the hand of Midian became strong on the Jewish people. And because of the Jewish people, because of Midian, the Jewish people made Minharot that were in the mountains and caves and Mitzadot and fortresses. So what are Minharot? So it's a great question. The, the Malbim offers two possibilities of Minharot. So he says, first, it could be a small um, cave that the light just pierces in a little bit. And an alternative explanation, which the Ralbag says as well, is that it was they used the mountains for torches. And so each person would go on his mountain. When he saw the marauding Midyanim and their Hevra coming, what would they do? They would go and they would wave their torches. Those that are familiar with the Mishnayos and Rosh Hashanah know that that's also how they got the message across of when Rosh Chodesh was coming. But it makes perfect sense. You want to warn the other people. So you see this guy waving a torch on top of a mountain. All of a sudden, you know, oh, the Midyanim are coming. That's the message that everybody sees. And what does everybody do? Everybody retreats. Everybody takes all their stuff and they hide it. Why? Because this way, they can protect their crops. And when the Jewish people would have crops, Midian would come up, the Amalek and and they would come up and they would consume the produce. And they would take everything, they would pick the land clean, all the way, it seems like, all the way to Aza, which means that they were actually following the Biamaris. They came up north through Amek Yisrael. I believe it's hard to read this map also. I believe that that says Chatzor right there. That's to the north of the, uh, the Kinneret. And they would come down the road along the coast through Aza. And they picked everything clean. If you, if you read uh, the stories, of 1948, and the way the the Arabs would would uh, attack those people coming to try to bring food to Jerusalem on the the the, the route one, the highway. Nowadays, it leads from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. 
you would hear stories about how you'd have trucks full of everything, all the produce that they needed, all the, 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 the everything, all the supplies that they needed, and they would be picked clean. There was nothing left. And that's really the sense that you get from the marauding troops of Midian, who allies themselves with, of course, an enemy that we're very familiar with, Abalek, and the Bnei Kedem, who we're a little bit less familiar with, Pasakei. And the uh, they and their 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 entire all their animals and everything they would come with their tents. Again, these are traveling, wandering nomadic tribes. They would come through, and they would be like our bed, like locusts. And they were like they were like locusts, and they would come and absolutely decimate. The, the Jewish people and everything they had. They did that for how long? For seven years. And the Jews suffered. They suffered terribly. And the Jewish people become dal. Mitzura Sion says, they become impoverished. They cry out to God. Now, the fact that they cry out to God, what does that mean? Is that tefillah? Probably. Is that tshuva? Unlikely. Meaning, we said this back in Tarek Bet, but this is the nature of how the Jewish people react throughout Sefer Shoshim. They cry out to God always. It's like a baby that's crying because they don't have or a baby that's crying because they're dirty diaper. It's not that they're crying because they care and want to do better. But they're crying to God because they're suffering. So they turn to God and say, God, how could this be? We can't survive like this. Now, it's not that they plan on changing anything in their lives. But they're like, God, you can't do this to us. Well, you're killing us. So listen to what happens with Pasuk Zion. And when it is that the Jewish people cry out to God, about everything that Midian did to them. God sends an Ishnavi, El Bnei Yisrael, to the Jewish people. And he says to him, them, he says to the Jewish people, there's Navi, I took you out of Egypt and I brought you out from the Beit Abadim. And I saved you from Mitzrayim, and I saved you from all your oppression. And I chased out all, I chased everybody away from you. I gave you this land. And I told you one thing. This is safer environment. So we're reading today these parashios. What does God say? God says, there's one, there's one key. If you want to be successful, don't worship idols. Leave the gods of the local land alone. They're not yours. And yet, what happens? Of course, we know that the Jewish people do, in fact, they do, in fact, worship these idols, and they worship them quite religiously. Now, what's interesting is, if you take, a, if you think back, this story should sound familiar. It should sound absolutely familiar. Why? Because back in we also had a story where a Malach Hashem, okay, there it's a Malach Hashem, it's not an Ish, 
but he comes from Gilgal Gohem, and he says the same thing. I'm saying the words of God. God said, took you out of Egypt, don't worship idols. And you did all that. Now, there's two huge differences here. The first, the first difference is that it's a each. It's not a malach. The second difference is the reaction. There, the Jewish people break out into crying and crying. This is terrible. Hashem, you're right. We're going to do better. Not so here. The, the response is muted. Now, what's interesting is that there's a third time that we're going to meet this quasi-Navi Malach. There's a break in the text to tell us about a message that was delivered. That is before Yifta. So it seems like we have three changes, three time periods within the Sefer. And at each time, this prominent person plays in. Now, I always find when you have an Ish-Navi or you have an Ish and they don't have a name, I find it always fascinating. Why is that? And what's interesting is that Chazal often don't like that. They're not comfortable with an unnamed person. And so what they have to do is they have to find someone and say, this is the person that spoke here. So the Ishnavi and the Malach Hashem, and here, Rashi says, Ishnavi Zanavi Upenchas. The Seder Olam, Parag Bet. I'm not sure that's Parag Bet of Seder Olam or if that's referring back to Parag Bet of Shoftim where he quotes the same Seder Olam and says, Zehanavi, who Pinchas. The Malach Hashem is Pinchas. Now, what is fascinating is that Pinchas, inserting him into the text here, seems to make a lot of sense. Who is our enemy here? Our enemy is Midian. Now, Midian is not a new enemy to the Jewish people. Midian is an enemy to the Jewish people in Parshas Balak. It is the, it's Balak ben Sipor, Melech Moav, who does he ally with? He allies with Midian. It's the Midianite women that cause the Jewish people to sin so greatly. And who is the one that stops that? You have this Magefa. Thousands of Jewish people are dying and they've all committed idolatry and idolatry and adultery. It's pretty bad. And along comes Pinchas. So it is interesting that Pinchas was the savior from the last Midianite oppression. And here his name is inserted into the story. You almost wonder, is the text trying or is the letters trying to weave in a subtle message? Jews, you messed up. I mean, come on. Why do we need Midian 2.0? Why do we need a second story that parallels the first? He did that already. But what does this Navi say? The Navi says to the Jewish people, I took you out of Egypt. God did Yitzhak Mitzayim. And we didn't deserve Yitzhak Mitzayim. The Jewish people were on the 49th level of Toma. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. But you have to imagine it's pretty low if there was only one level left until they were lost forever. And God comes in and says, I have a promise to the Jewish people. I have a promise to the Avos. I'm going to take you out. Now, is that to say that God is now going to come and save the Jewish people for the very same reason? You don't deserve it, but I'm going to do it also. Or is God saying, enough, I'm not doing it again. I gave you your opportunity and you chose to pass up on it. And so from there, we, we find ourselves in Pasuk Yudalif. 
You have a new Malach Hashem. The first one was an Isha Hashem. That was Pinchas. Now we have a Malach Hashem. It's a legitimate angel. And he, he goes under, he sits underneath a tree of Terebit. A tree, Asher Ofra in Ofra. Mepharshim point out that we have two Ofras in Tanakh. And therefore, we have, to, we have to know which one it is. Asher it's in the, the, the tribal land of Menashe that belonged to Yoash, Abiyah is the Gidon Beno, Chobet Chitim, Begat Lanis Mivnei. And Gidon, his son, is Chobet Chitim. He's beating the wheat. He's threshing and winnowing the wheat. Lanis Mivnei to save himself from the Midianites. There's a lot of information in this puzzle. Who really cares? Who really care about this tree that's in Ofra that belongs to Yoash? Okay, but maybe we need that. We need to have a little bit of context. Who is Gedon? Gedon is the the the, fa- the son of Yoash, who is from the family of Ezri. But he's Chovekitim. Who cares that he's winnowing the wheat? Bagat is so strange. Bagat is the wine press. In the wine press, you make wine. Why is he doing this? So to understand this, sorry, I have a uh, reveal on that picture. It shouldn't be there. Let's walk through the process of making wheat. I had hoped to embed a video, um, but I'm not so good at that. If anybody knows how to do that easily, that I don't have to jump off here and go into YouTube or something like that, feel free to reach out to me. But what exactly happens? You pick wheat. You start at the stalks, you cut them. You turn them into bundles. And then after you have bundles, what you do is you take the bundles, you put them out on the ground. And here you have the animals, the cows that are walking around. Usually they're also dragging something heavy that's made of metal with spikes. And they, they go around in a circle, right? You can see there's a, uh, a rope that attaches them to the stick in the middle. They don't have the mobility to go elsewhere. And they go around and around and around and around and around. And the purpose of it is that you're using their weight and this metal piece that they're dragging to crush the wheat. You see, if you look at a stalk of wheat, most of it is um, worthless. What you really want from there is the kernels. So after that, what happens is you collect the wheat, which is actually not just wheat. It's wheat and chaff together. But it's all mixed together. And you put it, you could do this actually nowadays if you really wanted, you put it in front of a fan, high-powered fan, and you throw it up in the air, and gravity does all the work. The heavy stuff goes up and goes down. And then the light stuff gets blown away with the wind. What did they do before they had electricity, before they had fans like we have nowadays? So you would go up to a high open area, preferably on a day that has a little bit of wind. You would throw it up in the air and the wind would carry the chaff and the junk to the side and gravity would take the other stuff and it would get down on the floor. That is the most efficient way to turn stalks of wheat into flour that you can make into bread. Okay, so that's that's a crash course and how to make flour. But Gidon doesn't do it that way. Gidon goes into the wine press, which is below ground. Now, the reason why you, you make wine below ground is because there you have the grapes, 
and you're crushing the grapes. And what do you want to do? Once you crush the grapes in a similar fashion with something heavy, you do oil the same way. Once you do that, you want gravity to take the wine down. So the wine goes down into the pit and the, the junk peels, the, the seeds and stuff like that. It stays where it is. Gravity takes the liquid in and leaves the psolet, the junk on the outside. It's a similar process and you're, you're utilizing um, the forces of nature and technology at the time to your best ability. The thing is that the most inefficient place to make wheat into flour is in a wine press because you're surrounding yourself by the high wall of the wine press. You lose the element of wind and you're really not allowing yourself the opportunity to make it as efficient as possible. And the space is far more limiting, which means that you probably won't even have enough room to do anything major. Why is it that Gidon does it that way? The Pasek tells us why Lanis is named Yan. He went into his wine press because it was a quiet place where no one would see him, and he could take a little bit of wheat, and he could make the process turn into flour so that he could have some bread to eat for his family. But we're not talking about efficiency. We're not talking about a way of really uh, harnessing his, the powers to properly feed his family. But the reason why he's doing it that way is why he's afraid. He knows that if he goes up in the mountain, if he goes in a public place, he's likely to be spotted. And if he's spotted, what's going to happen? The Midianites are going to come, attack him, and take his wheat. And like locusts, carry away all of his food. So he goes into this quiet, private place, far from effective, but he's able to successfully take away some food for his family. So Gedon is doing that, and the angel is watching. The angel appears to him and says to him, God should be with you, O powerful warrior. Now, that's a phrase that you might say, what does that exactly mean? What, what is he talking about? But if you're a student of Tanakh and you know the Gilat root, you'll know that that's actually just Shamalech. The same way two Jews might bump into each other on the plane and say, Shamalechem, Shalom Aleichem Rabid, or Hi, how are you? Common language that we use nowadays. Back then, the way to talk one Jew to another was Hashem Fagibor Chayim. Just a way of greeting them. Now listen to Pastor Yudkin. Gedon says, My master, is God really with us? And how could it be if God is with us that all this has happened to us? Where are all the great miracles? Where is the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Where is God? We've been forsaken and we've been left in the hands of Midian. It's a very powerful possible. You can feel his pain, but think about what he just heard. See, or not what he just heard, but what did we just hear? You see, we just heard the angel come. Pinchas, this Ish Hashem came and just told us what? Hashem saved us. 
maybe get on heard that. And get on says, really? God saved us? That was hundreds of years ago. Where are we now? Where's God now? We're suffering. We're suffering and continuing to suffer. Midian is suppressing us. Seven years. Where's God? But listen to the medrash that Rashi quotes. Rashi says that she's sipulan of tenu Pesach hayah. It was Pesach. It was the morning of Pesach. Amelo emesh ikrani abba tahalel ushmativ. Shayah umer b'tseid yisal mimitzrayim. Last night, I sat at the, the Seder. Last night, my father read the Psukim of Halil, but when, when the Jewish people left Egypt. And now we've been forsaken. And he says, listen, no matter what, we deserve to be saved. If our forefathers were tzaddikim, and do it for the tzaddikim. And if our forefathers were not tzaddikim, but if in fact our forefathers were Rishai, you, you, you took care of them for free back then, do it for us now. That is what Gideon says. I want to hold off on trying to understand that because I want to, I want to share with you the response of the angel. God turns him and says, go with this strength. And I want you to save the Jewish people from the hands of Midian, because for that you were sent. What is going on here? What does this mean? What, 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 did, we, what did we learn here? So first let's start with the Redak. The Redak says the following. God turns him He wraps him in strength. It's similar to, to Yiftach, who God envelops in the Ruach Hashem, or by Eliyahu, there was a strength from God that was on him. God gives Gido this. Yad Hashem's Kawach. It could be that this Kawach is just, I believe the Rambam and Moran of Uchim, so I heard from Rabbi Alex Israel, it's just, it's just God gives him in his head the intuition to do the right things. Is Gedon a Navi? I don't know. Is Gedon a Tzaddik? Not really sure. But God gives Gedon the intuition, the gut to make the right decisions. Similar to Yiftach, he saves the Jewish people. That's a possibility of what's going on here. Leich b'kochachazet. Raviel Ariel offers multiple explanations, but one answer that he quotes that I think is really spot on is the following. On the right side. By listening, you see what was he involved in. Think about his context. Here he is. He's in the God. It's an uncomfortable place to work. And he knows that the results of it are so, he's killing himself. What is he really going to produce? A tiny, a little bit of flour that will maybe get him through a couple of days. That's all he has. He could dwell on all of his frustrations. 
his personal problems. And when the angel turns to him and says, Hashem, you were a chayla, say, really? This is my life? Take care of me, God. Says no. What is his concern? What is his fear? What are where is all of his headspace? God, how could you do this to your people? God, how could you make your children suffer? Why is Gidon chosen? Because Gidon cares. Gidon cares so much about the Jewish people. That's another explanation. But I want to share with you an idea that I saw from Rabbi Michael Hatton. But before that, I have to share with you a story I heard from Rabbi Fran years ago. Rabbi Fran says there was a, a guy that turns his rabbi and says, Rabbi, it's almost Rosh Hashanah. I'm just not feeling it this year. I'm not inspired. I need you to show me something. Do something for me. Send me somewhere. Give me that inspiration. That will take me to a good place on Hashem Yom Kippur. So the rabbi says, to him, listen, there's an innkeeper. I feel like these stories always have an innkeeper. There's an innkeeper that lives in the middle of nowhere. Go to him and watch him do kaparos. When you watch him do kaparos, you can be inspired. He doesn't know when he's to do kaparos. He'll be Erev Yom Kippur, a few days before Yom Kippur. So he travels after Rosh Hashanah and he spends about Four or five days with the innkeeper. He watches his every move, figuring something like this guy is going to be so inspirational. And yet, as it turns out, he's less than inspirational. He curses. He's inappropriate. He seems more, more of a boor than a tzaddik. And he can't understand why he was sent to this person. But the rabbi says, so he stays. He stays for a day, two, three. Finally, it turns out that uh, the, the, the innkeeper does kaparos. He takes out these books. Huge, thick ledgers. He opens up the first ledger and it has every sin he's done the whole year. I missed Avni. I talked inappropriately. I spoke Russian Hara. And it takes them a good amount of time to get through. He closes the ledger and he opens up another one. And in that second ledger, it has the stories of everything that he saw. All the suffering, all the pain, all the indignity that Clown Yisrael suffered and he saw over the course of the year. God, my non-Jewish neighbor, beat that woman. This kid was taken advantage of. I saw someone, father of 10 children, die at, 20, at 35 years old. Goes through page after page after page. And he closes it and he says, God, we had a deal last year. I told you I'd do better. And then the deal was, you would do better. God didn't do better. But I didn't do better either. He took the two ledgers and he threw them into the fire. And he burned them. 
the chassid was in awe. Rabbi Fran says that he was a little bit nervous, a little bit hesitant to tell the story. Because the fundamental message of the story is that you can bargain with God. The fundamental message is that you can, you can say something like that. It's borderline blasphemy. So why do you share the story? Rabbi Fran says that the message that he takes in that story is that the guy was angry. He was angry at God. God, I have reasons to be upset with you. Look at all the things that I suffered. Look at all the things that Jewish people suffered. God, how could you? But here's the, here's the piece. If you're angry at God, it means you care. It means you acknowledge that God is actually, in fact, there. If you're not angry at God, then sometimes it just means that God is not a part of your life. God is not present in your life, says with Michael Hatton. Gedon is angry at God, and he has every reason in his mind to be angry at God. But maybe that's why he's chosen. You know what his koach is? His koach is that he cares. God is real. God matters in his life. But God doesn't matter in the lives of the other Jewish people. God is not present in them, in their minds. God says, take that anger. Take the fact that I am real. Take the fact that I'm a part of your life and I want you to infuse that to the Jewish people. That's the reason God says that you could be the leader. What an unbelievable idea. So yourself. I want you to think, what does this story sound like? Gedon says, Hashem, I'm sorry. How am I going to save the Jewish people? My family is the poorest in Menashe. And then I am the youngest in my father's family. So in our Shevet of Menashe, we are the lowest level. And within my own family, I am the lowest level. God how, how does this make any sense? God says, I will be with you. You will destroy Midian like one person. Sounds like Moshe Avenu at the burning bush. In fact, this is a motif that we see often with leaders of the Jewish people. Yermiyahu, Moshe, Gidon. They don't want the job. It is not something that they're clamoring for. In fact, that's often why God chooses them. God says, I want you to be the leader because you're not interested in this job. It is not something that you care about. So the reluctance is the same. The language. That's what God says to Moshe Avinu. He says, who am, who, who should I quote as the, my as the person say, sending me? Yeah. What other similarities? Gedon says, fine. If you are really God, then I want you, if I find favor in your eyes, give me a sign as to who I'm speaking to. Moshe Benu also asks for signs. The difference is Moshe Benu never questions whether it is Hashem. He questions 
whether he's the leader. Kedon isn't sure that it's in fact Hashem that's telling him. So he says to the angel, don't leave here until I bring this mincha to you. The angel, who is the representative of God, what does he say? He says, I'll wait here. The Gidon bug, Gidon comes, he makes a Gidizim, the Eifat Kemach Matzot Abasar Sambas Basal, and he has Matzah, and meat, the marak samba parur, and he has the 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 marak, the liquid. He puts in a parur, a dood, a like a, a bucket, some some sort of receptacle. And he puts it underneath the tree, and he presents it as his carbon. Now, interesting. I, I'm not going to go into the whole thing; it's way too involved. But there is a theory that's presented by Rabbi Foreman. That goats and coats, goats, um, the goats that we have by Korban Pesach, that somehow those goats uh, travel throughout Jewish history. They 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 find themselves um, they find themselves all the way back by Yosef. They find themselves by um, the Korban Pesach originally, which is the the start of the Jewish people, and then they they end. In, they've or that end, but they continue in, in multiple other places. So, is it possible that this is another moment where the goats? We don't have so much of a coat here. Plays in pasuk chaf. So the angel says, "Fine, I want you to take the meat and the matzah. Why matzah? So matzah could be it's pesach, which would help us with the medrash that we had before. But the other possibility is it's a connection to. It's often we have quick food. You need quick food." Lo, the angels show up. He needs to make food quickly. Matzah. Okay, same thing here. So what is he? He says, put it on the rack and pour the um, the soup on top of it. By asking, he does it. It's interesting. This is similar to Eliyahu and Caramel, where he soaks the parbon with liquid before he brings it. Interesting. Not sure exactly what to do with that. And so what happens is he 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 puts it on the Kitseha Mishenet. The right, the, the Malach Hashem uh goes towards the uh the edge. Um and what happens? So he touches the meat in the matzah and he goes up um from the rack up to the heavens. He disappears. And Gidon says, Oh my god, it's an angel. He's afraid. Rashi says, Dagak, lo what's going to happen? Now, this is always so troubling. Manoch is the same thing. If God comes to you, why are you afraid that something can happen to you? God wouldn't have come to you otherwise. Aisha's Manoach, Manoach's wife, says to him, Hello, don't you get it? If God came to you, it means that you're part of a bigger story. God's not going to kill you afterwards. Kiddo doesn't have anyone to talk to, and he's really nervous. Hashem. Hashem says to him, Shalom l'chal tiralotam. You have nothing to worry about. You're going to be okay. By even Shem is Gidom is Veach Hashem. Gidom builds him is Veach Hashem. Interesting. Um, Art scroll quotes. It's not a Mizveach for Korbano, but it's a monument. It's a it's a it's a place to remember this unbelievable um, moment. By Kralo Hashem Shalom, and he calls it Hashem Shalom. Adayom is until this day. Odenu b'afrat aviyazri, and it's in Ofra by aviyazri. Now that's that's great. That is an amazing story. But we we leave ourselves with 
this this one little piece right here. We're not going to finish the whole parak, but we're going to do a little bit more. I want you to take the cow that belongs to your father and a second one that's seven years old. Interesting, it's seven years and they've suffered for seven years. And I want you to destroy the Mizbeach of Hashem, the Mizbeach of Baal Sari, Baal, the idol of the Canaanim. And that's Asherah, Shalav Tifrot. And the Asherah, the tree that's so, uh, that covering over it, which is also idolatrous, idolatrous practice of the time, cut it out. And use the wood that you cut to make the Marachah for the animals that you're going to bring there. He takes 10 men, 10 men with him. He does exactly what God wants. It's terrified to do this. He thinks this is insane. So what does he do? He waits till the night. And, and he does this all at night. And he, and he, kills, he kills the animals. These are idolatrous animals. And they see that the that the the animals and their mizbeach and their asherah were all destroyed. They go nuts. And they want to know who did this. It was Gidon, the son of Yoash, that did this. He says, take out your son, we want to kill him. Because why? We want to kill Gidon because of what he did. He destroyed our Mizbeah. Listen to Yoash, it's brilliant. Yoash says to everybody there, Attempt to Baal, you're going to fight for Baal. He said, You know what I want? Let God, let the gods do that. If Baal is really upset, let Baal take it out on, on my son Kiddo. And if God is angry, then that's fine. And so what happens? Kiddo got a new name, which is Yerubal. What in the world is going on here? Um, so let's take a look at a beautiful idea by Rabbi Galariel. It's not a personal thing. Person, he knew in the end that it was going to come to, to the public forum. Does the whole thing publicly so that everyone could see what's going on. Sorry, God wanted it that way. He has to do it at night. And he brings the 10 men with him. So before I say there's public display, but he has to do it quietly at night because he thought he was going to get too much pushback. It was Gedo had already left idolatry, but not so much everyone else. He is able to uncover what's really in their hearts. The fact that they actually accept what Yoash says to show you that really their devotion to Baal was a little bit weak. Yoash might not be protecting um his, uh, the Baal, who's protecting his son. 
they they themselves stand up for uh, for Gidon because they don't really fully believe it. That's what he says. Rabbi Hatton says, why do we need this? Why is it that the very moment after he leaves God, he's told, you're going to be the uh, the leader of the Jewish people. You're going to you're going to fight for them. Why is it that he is told to do this thing? This is Michael Hatton doing amazing. It's a teachable moment. You need to worship Hashem before you can be saved. It's not just by Isaac Hashem. You can't just cry out to God with a baby saying, I need, I need, I need. Put your mind where your mouth is. Show that you actually are distancing yourselves from idols. God is saying, actually, this is the Makor. The Makor Abracha, you want to be successful? Great, I'm there for you, but I can only do it if you're no longer doing what you got to do. And so what happens? That's one possibility. Ravigal Ariel offers another idea. He says, Hashem does the first step of Ula. Hashem appoints Gidon, it's beautiful, but we need to make it happen. We have to do the next step. What is the next step? The next step is what he does. It's destroying idolatry in their midst. That is what Gidon does. Gidon is taking the Jewish people from a very low level. He's not going to inspire them, but at least he's going to cease the Avodah Zarah from within the midst of the Jewish people. Once that happens, Jewish people are poised to be successful. Thank you so much, everyone. We'll continue next week from the end of Parag Vav as well as Parag Zion. Have a wonderful week and keep walking in the ways of the